behalf of, of our nation and on behalf of the world. God, we call out for your mercy. Uh, we pray that um, this um, virus um, that we are seeing spread through throughout our world, um, God, that you would be um, merciful in the midst of it. God, that you would aid um, to to mitigate its effects, um, not because, God, we are uh, worthy of that, not because we are good, not because we are righteous, not because we have been faithful, God, but because you are good and merciful, um, that you would show your mercy um, to our nation, that you would show your mercy to um, the world um, when it comes to these things. God, we already see your mercy at work in so many ways. Um, God, as I learned today, about the way the virus works and how it seems to be almost, uh, it doesn't affect small children. Um, that children under the age of 10 are, are asymptomatic, that they do not have, they do not react to, to the virus the same way um, adults do. Um, God, and that, that ultimately scientists are, um, there's a mystery there. They don't know exactly the reason why that is, and yet we can look to that and say, God, this is your mercy. Um, working, that you would spare this in the lives of children all around the world. Um, God, we thank you for those mercies. Um, and we ask that you would show um, your mercy in mass um, to to your people, God, and that you would show mercy to the world. Father, we pray for the way this thing is going to play out uh, in our nation and around the world. We pray for our leaders. Um, we pray for wisdom on their part as they determine the best ways to to um, contain the spread, um, to mitigate um, the issues, God, to help people who are, who are sick, um, God, to, to figure out how this all works in with um, our national life and our economy and people's livelihoods um, in communities, God. Um, we pray for wisdom and mercy in those places. Um, God, we pray for those who are ill. Uh, we pray for those who are sick. Um, knowing that that this um, virus affects people in different ways, um, that we pray specifically for um, the elderly in our communities, God, who who potentially can be hit by it um, more severely than other people. God, we pray for those who are in some way immune compromised, God, people who are on chemo, people who have immune disorders, God, um, uh, children who have uh, difficulties. God, we pray for... Um, uh, just anybody who is in a situation where they would be at a higher risk um, than other people, God, we pray for um, you to work and to to keep those people safe and protect them during this time. God, we pray for our um, emergency responders. Um, God, we pray for our doctors and we pray for our ambulance drivers and our firemen and our policemen. Um, God, we pray for those people whose jobs are intimately connected um, with this in, in different ways and who do not have the opportunity um, to, to keep themselves away from, from illness in, in the same way that maybe other people do. God, we pray for their safety and that you would continue to work um, in a special way in their lives. God, we pray for um, the way that this could and will interfere with the lives of, of people every day. God, in, in, in light of, of life and death issues, it, it seems trivial, but God, to remember that um, there are people whose um, livelihoods are tied up in these things. 
um, that people whose um, things that they have been looking forward to, things that they have worked for, um, are, are going to be uh, interfered with because of this. Um, kids won't graduate from, from high school, um, potentially, this, um, this uh, semester. Um, um, life events, um, weddings and, and um, celebrations and anniversaries and all kinds of things will be altered because of these events possibly. And so, God, again, we pray for your peace and, and, and just your comfort in all of those places that you would, again, mitigate these things to, it, so they cause the least amount of, of disruption, God, um, and that you would continue to work in, in our lives um, and, and draw us closer to yourself, God. We, we recognize that any time we come to a point where we recognize our own uh, weakness, where we recognize our own inability, where we recognize our own mortality, where we recognize that in some ways that there are, there's no way that we can um, completely protect ourselves from, from these things. Um, God, in all these things, it reminds us that all of life is like this. Um, this is not something that is special or unique to the time that we're in, God, that we live this way every single day that we never know what the future holds and that we are fragile in so many ways, even if we have convinced ourselves that we are not. And so, God, thank you for um, the way that these things wake us up, God, the way that these things chasten us, the way that these things make us not only look at our own hearts and lives, God, but make us turn to our neighbors um, and, and look at them too. God, help us to serve and to love. God, help us to repent um, and recognize um, your great grace and mercy in every single aspect of our lives. Um, God, continue to bless, continue to provide, continue to protect. God, give us faith in times of trial. Uh, we thank you. We praise you. Um, we ask your mercy in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so what we'll do is um, is we'll kind of, 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 of bring our that prayer time and our uh, prayer time book right after the scripture reading, and those will kind of come together. I'll just go ahead and, and, and read our scripture reading, and then we'll enter into to the worship time, I mean into the preaching time, uh, if that sounds good. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 14, 14. Through fifteen six. Again, looking at the idea of glimpses of the gospel in the life of Abraham, specifically looking at the idea of grace and faith today. So, Genesis fourteen fourteen. It says, "When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he fled forth his trained. He led forth his trained men." born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. 
And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap from anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with them. Let Aner and Eschol and Mamre take their share. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay, and so, so like I said, um, we are we are talking about the idea of grace and faith um, as a progression of the gospel in this story. Okay, and so so we started kind of in the middle of the story. I probably should have started a little further back to kind of give you a sense of what's going on. Okay, but here's what has happened. So Abraham, remember, came into the land last time. He had been called out of Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Haran, which is, if you remember, like your middle school uh, history or whatever. Like there's this place called the Fertile Crescent. And so Ur is down here at the end of the crescent, the boomerang, and then Haran is at the top, and then the promised land, Canaan, is down this way, okay? And so Abraham has come into the, uh, to the land of Canaan. The Bible tells us that he goes and he settles in the land of the Negev, which if you kind of think of modern-day Israel, that is the bottom southwestern corner, okay? So that is basically where the desert is. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's relatively flat, it's, it's deserty, um, probably a place that you might... Um, uh, do herding and stuff like that. You know, there's, there's grass and stuff like that, but it's not very lush, you might say. Um, he's there for a little while and there's a famine in the land. And so he goes down to Egypt and that's the part where he goes down and he pretends like Sarah is his, his sister and there's that whole incident, right? When the famine's over, he comes back to the Negev. Then he moves into the mountain country near Bethel, which is where he first came into the country. And it's at Bethel that him and Lot separate. And so Lot says their, their herdsmen are having problems with each other. They're arguing over land and pasture and things like that. And so Abraham says, Lot, you decide which way you want to go, and I'll go the opposite way. And so Lot, standing in the mountains there in, in the land of Bethel, looks down into the Jordan Valley near the Jordan River, right? And he says, that looks pretty down there. I'm going to go down there. And so he takes his guys that way. And then Abraham goes south again and goes to a place called Hebron. And so Hebron is actually the place where eventually Sarah will be buried, and then later on Isaac and Rebekah will be buried, and then later on Abraham, and then later on um, Jacob and Leah. And then when Joseph is buried in Egypt and is brought back from, by the Israelites after the Exodus, 
he'll be brought back to Hebron, right? And there's actually a cave there. It was one of the things that I wish we had gotten to see when I was in Israel, but it's Palestinian-controlled now, and so they're a little hesitant to let people go down there. But it's the place. There is a giant castle that has been built around a cave that is the tomb of the patriarchs. Um, and it's still there, and you can go to it. Um, and I really wish we had gotten to see it, but it wasn't something that we got to see while we were there. So that's kind of the, the quick story, okay, that happens in this whole thing. So last week, again, we talked about God's decision. We talked about the way God chooses. He elects people, okay? And as we continue to talk about these glimpses of the gospel, we start to see something play out in this story in the life of Abraham. And that is two things. First off, we see God's posture um, to Abraham. And then we see Abraham's response and now posture towards God in this, this fast passage, okay? And so... If we wanted to say what God's posture is to us in one word, this is the word that we would use, grace, okay? God's posture towards his people is a posture of grace. And so by grace, we would say, we would define it, God's favor, God's blessing towards those that he has chosen in a general way to the whole world, but specifically to those he has chosen. He gives us what we don't deserve. Right? That's what grace means, right? He gives us um, what we don't deserve. He is positively inclined toward us, okay? So he doesn't look at us um, adversarially, okay? He wants what is good for his people. He watches out for his people. He is a God who is, who has chosen and who loves and blesses his children. Okay? That's what it means for God to be a God of grace, at least in part. Okay? A great picture of that that we see in the New Testament is when Jesus tells the, the parable of the prodigal son. Right? And you have this father who is there yearning for his lost child to come home. Right? And when the child comes home, he does not interact with the kid um, as a stern and merciless king. Right? What does he do? He welcomes the child back. Um, he is he is excited that he has come home, and he lavishes blessing and gifts on him, right? That is the picture of, of God, um, that he is this loving, gracious father to his children. And I think we see that grace play out in a couple of ways um, in this passage. And so here's like a short kind of outline of this, the section that we just read, okay? Um, first off, there's two incidents that happen in the passage, okay? First off, there's Abraham's rescue of Lot, all right, and then um, and then this second event that happens where Abraham refuses tribute from king, the king of Sodom, and at the same time pays his tithe to the king of Salem, who is is Melchizedek. Okay, so two incidents happen in this passage. Also, there are two, and I don't know the best way to say them, something like prophetic blessings that happen in this passage too. One of them. Melchizedek says in verse 19 and 20, and the other one God himself says in verse 15, 1, okay? Two things where something is uttered about Abraham that is something that is true now because this person has sort of prophetically said it, okay? And so um, what we, what we kind of notice in that, um, we're going to see Abraham's response after these things too, and that's going to be what we're talking about at the end but both of these two incidents and both of these two blessings do a pretty good job of framing God's 
favor, okay? It shows us what God's favor looks like, okay? And in the context of this passage, it takes the form of two basic things. God's favor towards us takes the form of protection and provision, okay? God's grace looks like his protection over us and his provision over us, okay? So let's start with that idea of God's grace being shown in his protection of Abraham. So the story, if you didn't notice, is a miracle, okay? The first incident that we see is a miracle. It's easy to just read past it and kind of go, oh, this is just like people doing things and like things working out a certain way. But it isn't. It is a miracle. When you look back at the beginning of 14, what we the, the setup of Lot being captured... Abraham has gone to rescue Lot. The setup is this. Four kings from the land of Mesopotamia. Okay, so Mesopotamia means the land between the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Four kings have as vassal states five nations in the land of Canaan. Okay? So what it means to be a vassal state is you are a smaller, weaker nation, and there is a government somewhere else that says, I'm your boss, you're going to pay me a tribute, and by paying me a tribute, we're going to promise not to kill you, okay? And so there are these four kings in Mesopotamia who have vassal states in the land of Canaan. But what has happened is those five kings have finally said, you know what, we, we're done with this. We're tired of paying this tribute to these people, and we're going to stop doing it, and we're going to rebel against them, all right? And so they do, and then those four kings raise up armies to come and reestablish their, their um their power over those people, okay? Now, here's the reason why it's miraculous, okay? This whole story is miraculous, is you've got to think about the context of all these things, okay? Number one, remember that those four kings in the north, in Mesopotamia, must have been significantly powerful states to have vassal nations that were six, eight hundred miles away, right? Like, you're not just a nobody little city if you can have the kind of authority that says, I live 800 miles away from you, but you better send me money or I'm going to kill you, right? Um, remember where they're coming from. These guys are coming from the land of Mesopotamia, which is the places of Babylon, Assyria. Like the greatest empires, they haven't happened yet. This is before those empires. But there's a pedigree already that is a fertile, rich land where great nations rise up. And these are not little states, right? These are honestly, the cities that they come from are the precursors of those great nations, okay? And so these four great powers come down. They attack the five kings of, of, of Canaan and beat them. Okay? No contest. They whoop them and they take their people and their stuff and they take it away with them and, and start heading back to their own land. And because Lot had gone down to live amongst those people, he got captured too. All his stuff got taken. So Abraham finds out about this and he says, I'm going to go get my, my kin back. Okay? And then what is crazy, again, that we might miss it, is it says Abraham takes 318 men. That is the whole size of his army against what must be an army of thousands, if not tens of thousands, right, that has come from these Mesopotamian lands. Also, they've just come down and beat five other nations, right, and carried them off into captivity. There is a, a big odds issue, right? There's one gigantic powerful army, and then you basically, I mean, the word that we might use is a little guerrilla force, right? Like it is a small band of, of warriors that's going to come into this thing. And yet what happens? Abraham takes his 300 men, they split up into two groups, they attack, sneak attack by night, and they 
rout, they set to flight the entire armies of those four kings of Mesopotamia. So much so that the guys get up and run, leave, run for their lives, and Abraham is able to reclaim all the people and all the stuff that was lost in the battle um, and get it all and return it back to those five kings that had, um, had left, okay? That's a miracle, Okay, that is a miraculous kind of battle that has taken place. And so we need to notice that up front. We're told that Abraham pursued them as far as Dan. And so Dan is a city that is in the extreme north of modern day Israel. Okay, um, again, we got to go there. When Indy and I were in Israel, we got to go to the ruins of ancient Dan. You can see the Syrian border from Dan. So you're standing on a knob that has a, that has a city, a ruined city on it, and you're looking and you can see the watchtower, you know, from Syria that's whatever. There's a bunker from the Israeli war in the 60s that is there on with trenches and the whole deal, and you're right there, okay? Um, but what's really cool about the city of Dan is this. The name Dan is an Israelite name. There was an Israelite city there called Dan that the writer of Exodus is remembering. Okay, so he's saying, yeah, up there in the region of Dan. But when Abraham was there, there was an older city, and the city was called Laish, okay? And it was an old Canaanite city. What's really cool is that when you go to the ruins of Dan, they have found the ancient gates of Laish, of these mud bricks that are sitting there 3,700 years old, and they've found the gates, and, like, you can go up and, like, see it or whatever. It was one of the coolest, oldest kind of things that's there. And guess what they have named that gate? They've named it. Abraham's gate. Why? Because it's if Abraham came to this city in the rescue of Lot, odds are that was the gate he entered into and went out of. That was the gate that he brought all these people back to this city after he had rescued them. And so you can go to that place still um, 3,700 years um, later and see it. And so what happens, though, is, is the bigger idea there is that what? God protects Abraham, right? He gives him this miraculous kind of military victory. And that reminds us of something in general, of God's grace to us. God protects his people, okay? He watches over them. He provides for them. Um, if you have been a believer for very much time, you can name times in your life where something happened and you could feel God's providential protection over your life, right? Where you knew that things could have turned out a whole lot worse, and yet they didn't, okay? And so I've shared with you a couple times about my car wreck um, last year when, 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 uh, Josh and I were coming back from Dominican Republic, right? And I was in a car wreck on the interstate going 80. All this stuff happened, and I look back at it and think that event should have ended differently, right? Um, I know what my car looked like. I know what happened on the interstate as literally cars are zooming, weaving in and out of, of, of four lanes of traffic trying to miss other cars. And the amazing thing was that at the end of the whole process, three cars were damaged, but not a single person was injured in any way, right? Incredible, okay? And, I, and, and it almost went by so fast that I just sort of went, oh, yeah, no big deal, or whatever. But when I look at it and I think about the chaos that we were sitting in the midst of, I go, I should be dead. My mom was right behind me, and she, her car was in, broken in the process. She should be dead. Um, there was another truck behind us that was a big old, like a, like a groundskeeping kind of truck that guys use or whatever. Man, that dude was all over the interstate after his wheels blew. He sh we should all be dead. And yet God's providential protection was there, right? I believe that. Um, we see God working in those ways. He takes care of his people. And so that protection 
is not only emphasized in the miracle that takes place, but is emphasized by these two prophetic blessings that are given by Melchizedek and God in the next section. And so, again, on the way home, he rescues all these dudes, and on the way home, he comes back, and he goes through this area where he is met by this guy named Melchizedek. And it says Melchizedek is the king of Salem. That's the first thing. And it also says that he is the priest of God Most High. Melchizedek is an enigmatic character, okay? Like, he's an interesting dude that there's lots of speculation uh, around in the scriptures, okay? The Bible says that he is king of Salem. And what we think is that is, as in Jerusalem, right? That he is the king of Jerusalem, the ancient Jebusite city of Jerusalem. Possibly it could be a different city, but we think that that's the case because this area known as the, the Valley of the Kings is, is there close to Jerusalem too. And so we think that's what's going on here. Um, it says that he is priest to El Elyon, which means the God Most High. And as such, as a priest to God Most High, Abraham tithes to him. Like he recognizes that this guy is a priest to the, the, the one true God, the God that is above all gods. Um, and that becomes incredibly significant when we get to the New Testament. When we get to Hebrews chapter 7, there's a whole section there where basically the writer of Hebrews uses Melchizedek's priesthood to explain how Jesus could be a high priest and yet not from the family of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, right? Because Jesus is not from that line. And so therefore, according to the Jewish world, he shouldn't be a priest. You can't be a priest unless you're from Aaron's um, lineage, right? But then the Bible tells us that Jesus is our ultimate high priest. How can that be? And the Bible basically says it's because he's, an, he's, a, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest the way Melchizedek was a priest. And even Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, recognizing his priesthood. There are some people who think that Melchizedek is actually a pre-incarnate visitation by Jesus. Okay, That the Melchizedek that Abraham is meeting and talking to is actually Jesus pre-incarnate. I don't believe that. Um, I don't think that's accurate, but but you get some hints as to that in the in the from the writer of Hebrews. Okay, and so he's an interesting character. There's a lot of neat stuff that you can that you can look into and 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 study when it comes to Melchizedek. But what we want to zoom in, we don't have time for all that that stuff. Is is he Jesus or not? Um, what we want to zoom in on is what does he say? What does he say um, to Abraham? And so we see this verse twenty. Melchizedek highlights God's protection. He says, what has the Most High God done? Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Okay, so what has God done? Again, he has protected Abraham. How did Abraham win that battle? Is, is this like a 300, you know, the, 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 the uh, 300 Spartans kind of situation where they were like, we're better warriors, we got better tactics, better terrain, we are going to, like, work this thing, right, because we're awesome. No, that's not what's going on. Melchizedek says, you want to know why 318 men were able to rout these four massive armies from, uh, from the land of Mesopotamia? Because God delivered them into your hands. God has done this great thing for you. When the odds were stacked against you and a reasonable expectation would have been that you would have been decimated, annihilated by this force, God instead has protected you and given you this great victory and given your enemies into your hands. And so again, 
Just after that, what does then God say to Abraham? Verse 15.1. He says, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Okay? I am your shield. Um, your own power has not accomplished these things, right? I am a God who protects you because that's a function of my grace to you. That's a function of the way that I love and care and, and provide for you. I am your shield. So the gospel promises that not only to Abraham, but it promises it to his people, that God is watching out for his people at all times and protecting his people at all times. Does that mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you? No. It does not mean that, right? Um, no balanced understanding of the Word of God would, would allow for that, right? Um, we cannot ignore the way that God uses difficulty, the way God uses trial, and the way God uses suffering in our lives, okay? That happens. And yet, even in the midst of those things, we can trust that God is still at work. God is graciously watching over his people. God is using those things to make those things work in the ways that he wants to in his people's lives, that his interests are coming to fruition. And so um, we can see God's protection of Abraham, and we know that that is something that he promises to his people too. But it's not just protection, right? It's also provision. God is the one who gives his people what they need. So in verse 16, it tells us that after the sneak attack, right, um, Abraham comes back down, he has this encounter with Melchizedek, right, after he's rescued Lot, but he hasn't just rescued Lot. He's rescued all the other people from the other towns that were captured of the five kings of, of the land of Canaan. And one of those kings, the king of Sodom, yes, that Sodom, right, the one that's going to get burned to the ground in a very short amount of time, right, the king of Sodom comes to Abraham and he says, hey, Thanks, right, uh, for, for rescuing everybody. I'll tell you what, why don't you give me back my people and you can keep all the rest of the stuff as a thank you for doing this or whatever, as a tribute to, to what you have accomplished um, in the way that you have helped my people. Now, on the surface, like we would probably look at that and go, yeah, that's, that seems fair, right? Abraham certainly risked a lot doing this. Um, doesn't seem like a big deal, Uh Maybe Abraham is, it deserves some compensation or reward for his efforts. But that's not what happens. Abraham realizes that something else is going on in this situation. So look at verse 22. So Abraham refuses the gift. He says, I don't want it. You keep it. Um, I'm not going to take it. And then he says, why? Why does he not take it? He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. Essentially, that's a picture of him saying, I have, I have sworn an oath to him. I have set my allegiance on him. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. That's an important title for what we're talking about, right? He is God Most High, he is the Lord, but he is also the God who is what? The possessor of heaven and earth. And then he says in verse 23, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Okay? Abraham realizes that the king of Sodom is not just trying to honor Abraham, but in a sneaky way, he is trying to bring Abraham down to his level and also take credit for the success and, and, um, and victory and blessing that Abraham has in his life, right? So that at some future date, when Abraham is doing really well in the land or whatever, the king of Sodom could look out and say, 
you know, Abraham, he may have all this stuff, but if it wasn't for me, he wouldn't have any of that, right? I'm the one who got him to be where he is. There's a really cool thing that has happened in the, in the Jewish language, and it has to do with this passage, okay? We notice that it says this interesting thing. This whole interchange between uh, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek and Abraham happens in the valley of Shaveh, okay? Valley of Shaveh, okay? The word Shaveh means level plain. Okay, so it means a flat area, but here's something interesting. The word has taken on the meaning in the Jewish language and understanding more like the way we would say a level playing field. Okay, it's not just a flat plain geographically, it is a level playing field. So where does this meeting happen? It happens in the valley of the level playing field. And that's exactly what is going on in the story. The kings of Sodom are trying to say, you know what? We don't like the idea that there is this one dude who seems to be favored by God above everybody else. What if we were just all kind of equally powerful kings? And what if we brought you in on this so that your livelihood and your wealth and your power, Abraham, was all tied up in our wealth and power and stuff like that, right? You could just be one of the guys. And your the way that you have been provided for could be a function of our being provided for, okay? But again, Abraham is not tricked by this. He sees um, through this. He recognizes that there is a temptation here, and he's not fooled by it. And so he says, you know what, guys? Here's the deal. I don't need your money. Uh, I don't need your mutually beneficial alliance. Um, Why? Why do I not need those things? Because I have lifted my hand to the Lord Most High, who is what? He is the possessor of heaven and earth. If I ever need something... The God who owns everything will provide it. Okay? I don't have to compromise in any way. I don't have to make any kind of goofy deals because I'm worried about, about um, my livelihood in some way. The God who is the possessor of heaven and earth, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the Bible tells us, he has the means to take care of me. He has promised to do so, and I don't need the world's assistance in these things, right? And so what happens is not only have we heard that God is the possessor of heaven and earth that Melchizedek told us, but what does God himself say in verse, again, in verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2, or 15, verse 2? He says, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. And then what does he say? Your reward shall be very great. Don't worry, Abraham. I will take care of you. I have chosen you. I have protected you. And now I will provide for you. You don't have to worry about those things. Um, I'm not going to let you go without what you need. So again, I believe that if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you have seen God do this in your life any number of times, right? You have seen God provide. You have seen him take care of you, whether that is through strange financial windfalls that have come to you, job opportunities, promotions, special circumstances, right? I could tell you any number of times in our life where, man, we needed something, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, uh, it came to us, and God provided, right? Um, most of you can tell me stories of times where you have needed something, and you have prayed to God and said, God, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how to move forward in this situation. And then all of a sudden, God lays something down in your lap. Why? Because that's what God does. God provides for his people. And so 
we see God pr- protecting, we see God provi- providing for his people, but then what happens is then in the last part of the, se- the, the passage, we also see how Abraham responds to that. Okay? We have seen God's grace extended, and now we see the way that Abraham responds to it. And I can go ahead and tell you how he responds is one of the most significant passages in the entire Old Testament. One line of Scripture is one of the most important lines in all of the Old Testament, okay? Abraham recognizes that God has been gracious to him, but in Abraham's eyes there is still something missing, okay? There is a glaring hole in the protection and provision that God has shown him. And we see it in chapter 5, verse 2. So again, he says, O Lord God, what will you give me For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will have to be my heir. So Abraham has no son. He has no child to continue his line. And while he is thankful for the protection and the provision that God has provided, he's unsatisfied with it. And essentially he's saying this, God... And, and, it's, and it seems a little almost, there's, there's a, it feels a little impertinent, I think, to us. But it's almost, he says, God, what is your protection over me if in the end all my possessions end up going to this dude who lives in Damascus, just some stranger? What is your provision in my life if you don't provide for me the one thing that I need most, I want most, and that is an heir? Now, here's what's interesting. There's a reminder for us there that God doesn't always give us to protect and provide right when we want it, okay? Um, there are lots of times in our life where we're going to go, hey, God, uh, you promised to provide and protect for me, but it ain't happening right now, and you might not even see it happen for weeks, months, years even. And yet, God is faithful, and, and eventually you see these things come to fruition or whatever. But Abraham's in a situation right now where he says, the one thing that I need from you in terms of protection and provision, God, you're not giving to me, and that's a son. Sometimes we just have to wait. Sometimes we have to wait to see God's provision and protection. But if we know ahead of time that he is in a posture of grace to us, then that changes our whole perspective on all of these things. We may want it right now, but we also just have to realize that sometimes God is is doing other things. So just because we don't have it doesn't mean God has forgotten us. He hasn't forgotten Abraham, right? He actually wants what Abraham wants. And so in verse 4, it says, Behold, the Lord God came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Right? That's one of the, the, the promises that probably we are most familiar with of, of the of God's promises to the people of Israel, that the descendants of Abraham would be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, right? Um, that he would not be able to count the number of his descendants. And so God promises to protect Abraham and his line and provide for him through giving him a child. And then this is the kicker, right? This is the passage that, that is the most significant um, of the ones we've looked at and one of the most significant in all of the Old Testament. Chapter 15, verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay? 
one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament. Abraham believes God. He trusts God. He has faith in what God has said, and it is counted, it is reckoned to him, it is credited to him, it is treated as if it were righteousness. Okay? So what is righteousness? Abraham, if he were perfectly right with God, if he had never sinned, if he had never done anything wrong, if he was in complete alignment with the character of God, that is what righteousness is. It is, it is rightness with God. And the scriptures tell, we know that Abraham's not that guy, right? We know that he is not a man who is aligned in that way with God because nobody is, right? We all have sinned. We've already seen Abraham's sin in a couple of instances, right? We know that he's going to sin some more. He's even going to sin in a way that is against the faith in some ways, right? That, that, that he is not being as faithful. And yet, what do we see? What does it say? It says, Abraham believes God. He trusts God. And what does God do? He credits it to him as righteousness. It's not actual righteousness, right? But he counts it as if he was righteous. Folks, in light of the New Testament, again, that is, that is probably one of the most significant verses in all of the scriptures. When Paul explains the gospel in the book of Romans, okay? Chapter 1, he says, you guys are busted, right? It's a whole mess, and you are sinful, and everybody is, right? All across the board. And then in chapter 2, he says, God's righteous judgment is coming, and none of you can escape it. Not the Jews, not the Gentiles. Every single one of us is under God's condemnation in chapter 2. But then we get to chapter 3. And, and Paul drops the bomb of the gospel on us. And he says this in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a as an atoning sacrifice, as something that receives the wrath of God, right? A propitiation by his blood that is received by faith. Okay? It is by faith in Christ and Christ alone that we are saved, that we are counted as righteous. And then this is what is amazing. Then in the very next chapter, so Paul's like, I've dropped the bomb of the gospel on you, so now I'm going to start explaining to you the nature of the gospel, how this whole thing works. And the first thing he shows us in chapter 4, he shows us that this idea of of grace, salvation by grace through faith in Christ is not a novelty. It is not a new idea. It is not plan B. Right? It was always plan A. And he does this, and he starts talking in chapter um, 4, 3, and he says, For what do the scriptures say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as something he's owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so what is Paul doing? He's saying, this is always the way God has worked. The gospel has been in place since the beginning. Could we see it clearly? No. We couldn't see the whole picture yet because we didn't have Jesus. But even before Jesus came, God was still working the same way. He was working salvation by grace through faith. And so he continues on in chapter 4 and verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace... And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, 
who is the father of us all, right? And there's the, the, the fulfilling of that prophecy. I'm going to make your descendants as the, as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. He says, we are those people, right? We are Abraham's descendants because we are those who have trusted in God by faith. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Right, there it is. And as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. But he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old at the time. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raises from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for, up for our justification. Okay, I mean, there it is, man. The, the gospel is laid out. Paul shows us and he says, this little story that was just a couple of lines where Abraham says, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't have a child and that's all that I want. And God says, I'll give you a child. And, I'll, and, and your descendants will be like the, sand, the, the stars in the sky. And Abraham believes him. And God says, your faith is going to be counted as rightness with me. And so when we get to the New Testament, Abraham is our model, man. He is saved. He is forgiven. He is counted right before God, not based on his works, not based on the fact that he's a really good guy, not based on the fact that he does everything right, not based on the fact that... He never does anything skeezy because Abraham does some skeezy things here and there, okay? Some dumb things, even some unfaithful things, okay? And yet, that mustard seed-sized faith, God looks at it and says, I'm going to count that as righteousness. I'm going to receive that as righteousness. Faith in the promises of God that rests on the grace of God, that's the gospel, right? So we see the that played out even in the life of Abraham 1,500 years, 1,700 years before the coming of Christ, 3,700 years before our own time. We see God choose Abraham. We see God's gracious concern for Abraham. And we see Abraham respond to that grace in faith. All right? And so, again, I would just encourage you to... And revel in these stories, right? It's, it's, it, is, it is encouraging and uplifting and, and gives us a kind of assurance that we can look at these things and say, I'm not crazy, right? Um, and I'm not good at a lot of things, right? I've got a lot of issues in my life and, and I'm weak in so many ways. But to know that your weakness is not what your salvation is based on. God does not look and say, man, I need you to be better. I need you to be stronger. I need you to be um, more in tune with me or I'm not going to save you. No, he looks and he says, just your faith. Just trust me. Just trust me. Um, and I'll count it as righteousness and you'll be one of my people and I'll save you. Okay? That's the beginning of the gospel. And it's not even the end of the story because we're going to see a bunch of other ways in which the gospel is played out in the life of Abraham in the couple of, next couple of weeks. We're going to elaborate on what God is doing specifically. Like you could sit here and go, cool, God, but how? How are you going to accomplish these things in my life? And we're going to see those not only in the life of Abraham, but how they mirror what Jesus Christ has done for us um, in his own life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so let's just go to the Lord in prayer right now. I'm just going to close it at that, and we're going to, and I, I just want to encourage you, man, revel in that. Um, 
Um, look to God and say, thank you, God, for not only, just like you said, for not only writing this, but writing it for me. Letting me know about a story that happened 3,700 years ago so that I would understand that my faith is based on Jesus Christ and not in, in my own works in the same way that it was for Abraham. Let's go to Lord in prayer. God, again, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace, God. Thank you that you protect and provide. God, in a time of that we are in, in time of uncertainty, and, and, and we, are, we are nervous and we're anxious and, and even fearful about the way things are, are going, um, God, we know that you protect your people. God, we know that you provide for your people. We know that come what may, whatever the circumstances, God, whether trials and difficulties and illness come into our life or whether you completely guard us from those things um, and, 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 and we seem to, to, to see things just, just passing by us um, and, and not even have to deal with them. God, in both cases, you are a God who is in control. You are a God who loves your people and is gracious you are trustworthy, you are wise, you are good, and you protect and provide for your people. God, help us to respond to your grace in faith. Help us to look to you and in any circumstance in our life. Say, God, I don't know what you're doing and I don't know how these things are playing out, but God, I know that you protect. I know that you provide. I know that you love me and have saved me and are working for good in my life. God, increase my faith. Help me to trust in you and respond to you in everything um, you show us through your grace and faith. Uh, we thank you. God, we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.